welcome to Can Queer, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. And my name is Sebastian. And uh, we are, yeah, let's, let's dive into it. It's going to be a bit of a busy week. Last week, we talked about how Montreal Pride had, uh, at the 11th hour, cancelled their march. I think I titled the episode Montreal March Madness. Uh, but one of the things that emerged that I thought was actually quite entertaining, which we, we I mean, we, we went live on Monday and it happened Sunday. So it was pretty, uh, pretty tight turnaround on, on getting an idea of what happened. But uh, it turns out that the Afro Pride, which has a very lively contingent at Montreal mm. Pride, you know, mm-hmm. we're talking about people in these glorious outfits okay, uh, yes. as part of Afro Pride. Um, they, just like many other people, uh, had lined up at their their uh, float to go doodling down this parade march. Uh, don't forget that we mentioned that the city of Montreal float uh, just pulled into a park. And But there was a moment of queer joy uh, during all of this uh, marching or lack thereof madness. And that is where the Afro Pride float was like, you know what? I'm just going to go. And the Afro Pride float did the parade route. It is the only float <laughs> that did the route, uh, mm-hmm. bearing in mind that the route was no longer a route. It was just roads at that point. Um, yeah. But they had, they did the route. They had music blaring out of a massive sound system on the back. A mm-hmm. good probably 100, if not more, people just dancing, waving hands uh, in the background. It was a very, very joyful movement of the Afro Pride float. Uh, which then moved into uh, and uh, you know the village, and I think they ended up somewhere afterwards. But yeah, they, they did the float and brought brought the party. That's what they did. They brought uh, the party, the Afro Pride float. So just, shout out to those folks. Thinking of the logistics of that, because normally like parade speed is like I don't know, like five to fifteen kilometers an hour. I guess it depends on the tick of the the parade. But then if you're driving on the roads, you have to go flow of traffic. Otherwise, you're dangerously slow. Montreal doesn't really have wide roads, so everywhere is basically a side street. So going slow is not that disruptive. That's really what I was trying to say. We we talked a lot about the 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 debacle and the mm-hmm. uh, dazed and confused politicians and uh, you know I think missing that element of queer joy that happened brought to folks by Afro Pride like I mean way to way to lead on that one um, mm-hmm. yeah it was a, it was a great piece of news that I wanted uh, I wanted to share with our listeners because it just it's nice to have that that bit of joy it is worth saying that. Generally speaking, the parade is for the broader community. It's for the public. And a lot of the Pride events are for the individuals within the community. And the fact that all of the community events went forward as planned, most people who are who live in Montreal and are active members of the Toronto, uh, Toronto, Montreal uh, LGBT community, if the parade is the only thing you're going to, chances are you're working that weekend. Like most people go to events, you know, and and as much as it is a bummer that the parade was canceled, the fact that everything else went ahead as planned is a pretty good sign. The the mayor of Montreal has come out to say that they're not going to do a recall on the money that they spent on the parade, mm-hmm. that it, it was... Uh, it doesn't look great on them, but it looks uh, early signs kind of show that uh, what they may do is just make sure that everything is done far ahead of time. It doesn't look like anyone's made any declarations just from the bits and pieces that I've been reading. It looks like, I mean, that would be the right solution either way. 
if I were the mayor of Montreal, I'd say, you know, the whatever you do, like the normal timeline for doing a parade, subtract one week, and that's that's what you're getting. Like, get get in there a little bit earlier, you know, just for for next year for the the sake of uh, uh, public confidence, mm-hmm. I guess, for lack of a better term. So there was a, a rather serious incident that happened, uh, just to change a, l- a little bit of speed here, a mm-hmm. rather serious incident that happened uh, earlier this week by a very well-known uh, Twitch uh, live streamer. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like, uh, you know, the, the cool kids know what Twitch is. So we're oh, yes. not talking to them right now. We're talking to, to the, the uncool adults uh, yes. listening. It's essentially a, a streaming platform where folks uh, who uh, play games. Um, but, you know, they have massive followings. I think uh, Keffels is the, the, the username that uh, Clara Sorrenti uh, goes by on Twitch and has a very substantial following. I think it's like a good couple hundred thousand, if not more. Okay. Um, but was... What Keffels has done is is definitely an advocate in terms of speaking openly and frankly about uh, the anti-trans legislation that is growing in the United States. I mean, mm-hmm. it is uh, horrific. We are we usually don't cover it because it, it is a roller coaster of pro-trans, anti-trans, pro-trans, anti-trans, uh, with mm. a lot more anti-trans content than... than and always flying to the extremes as well. Oh, like, it is. It is. It is ridiculous. Absolutely like, ridiculous. Like, the, the, the pro-trans are like, everyone should be trans, no barriers, no nothing, everything should be free, do whatever you want. And when I say everything, I mean everything. And then you have, like, at the other extreme, and, and there's no one in the middle who's like, you know, the... If you're going down the medical route, it should go through the medical route. You should talk to the doctor and make sure that it doesn't conflict with other medications. And, like, it, you don't see anybody talking about that because that's in the middle. That's, like, sensible and, and, and all that. And, yeah, we tend to avoid the American news because it is it, – it's people often arguing from the extremes. And you do see a lot of moderates out there who are like, we just want what's best for trans people. And if that's a little bit moderate down the middle, then that's fine. If that's a little bit far to one side or the other, that's fine. So long as the data shows that that's what works, but that doesn't really transfer well to media because it's like, well, let's have a nuanced conversation for the next hour, which we have done, but we're not usually on that format. We would have to have a single issue episode to to pull that off. Just to give you an example, this is just one of the news stories that we didn't get into, and that is that there is a group of parents uh, at the Linmar Community School District of Iowa that are suing the school... Mm-hmm. Because the school is refusing to publicly out uh, the trans students in that school. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? But they were like, yeah, they have policies that shockingly protect students. Um, and uh, the parents are most upset that all of the trans students aren't being outed. Bearing mm-hmm. in mind that teen suicide amongst trans folks is astonishingly higher than non-trans folks uh, at the teens. And the Republican governor for Virginia uh, is looking at uh, forcing teachers to out the students to their parents as well. So it's it's really, it's very hard to see the joy in some of these new stories. So we generally uh, do, not, uh, do not dive into it. But Keffels has been, generally speaking, following a lot of these stories and uh, having a frank conversation about it um, one of the things that uh, they noted was they get a lot of messaging from young trans folks, uh, particularly, obviously, American trans folks, uh-huh. who are saying, like, look, your conversation about this 
gave me the converse, confidence to look into it deeper. Give me the confidence mm-hmm. to have a conversation with my parents about this or whatever the case may be. That they see a open and frank conversation by carefuls uh, on their stream as really opening up their dialogue moving forward. Um, however, uh, Clara Sorrenti, a.k.a. Keffels, has had a lot of death threats from mm. having these conversations. Uh, bearing in mind, it speaks a lot about American uh, these American policies. Well, I mean, I, I, not, I'm 0% doubting this, by the way. It's just, unfortunately, a lot of Twitch streamers get death threats, even if they're just, like, I don't know, playing... Uh, uh, oh, what's the one where you stab people and you have to figure out who's the liar? Oh, Among okay. Us. Yeah, yeah. There, there are Among Us streamers who get death threats. So, I mean, some of that's just hollow internet bull, uh, but some of it, I, I'm sure, is is credible in people saying, like, I will find you live, where you live, and not just, like, you know, normal mean internet stuff, which unfortunately is abundant. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there, there has been an increase, is the real thing. It's, it's above expected by far. So on last Friday, uh, Kefels was woken up at the, the crack of dawn on, uh, on, on Friday morning by mm-hmm. the London, Ontario police uh, officers. They have confirmed that they did, in fact, uh, do a raid. The intelligence that the warrant sort of details is that they were looking for a handgun, ammunition, and electronic devices. It's worth noting why the London police raided Keffel's home mm-hmm. uh, at first thing Friday, uh, Friday morning. They said that they were contacted by London City Hall, noting that several individuals at London City Hall had received a letter threatening potential violence against them. Uh, the emails falsely using uh, careful or Sorrenti's details uh, were, had been sent to city councillors claiming that careful had killed their mother and was now moving on to the city councillors next. Apparently, Ooh. this specific language in this threat had been used in other swatting uh, incidents in the past. Uh, mm-hmm. It also goes on to claim that they will be specifically targeting straight people and cis people. I mean, like, that's a lot of people. That mm-hmm. is, it's going to mm-hmm. take a while to get through uh, get through that. Um, in all fairness to the uh, the London uh, police, they reacted very swiftly to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they took the cre- the threat very credibly. They got uh, judicial approval uh, to then raid the home of the the where they believed the message originated, um, mm-hmm. but it had been designed to look yes. like careful and that's what the swatting is it's all about getting the police to show up on high alert expecting a a a, a loon prepared to commit you know egregious murders yeah Um, they are they are not trigger happy but very much trigger ready uh, yes to to respond to that uh, that particular threat and there you are hearing a thumping at the door kind of bleary-eyed being like what's that about and to have SWAT teams storm through the door, I mean, I would, at that point, your only hope is entirely on the training of those SWAT officers. Yeah. And that yeah, you yeah. do not do or say something that can be perceived as a, as a threat. I mean, mm-hmm. what a terrifying situation to find yourself in. Yes. And uh, luckily, um, 
a lot of the police forces in Canada, having seen how squatting has a habit of turning out, are pretty good at training their officers to not overreact. Um, the, the the case a few years ago of the uh, the man in Toronto who drove through the the crowds in his van, and the fact that the the police didn't want to shoot him until they knew for sure if he was a danger or not, and they arrested him uh, without. I mean, other than the incident that led up to it. So, I mean, there, there is there is signs that there are pretty stable police when it comes to this kind of thing. Luckily, as a result of training, and, and luckily the first events that forced them to reevaluate the, the kind of training that they have did not happen in Canada. So um, I did a little bit of a lookup on that uh, to see what the, the general Canadian trend is on, uh, on swatting, and I actually did find... Um, Every time anybody calls with an incident like that, they immediately start tracing, just in case it turns out to be a SWAT. Um, half the time, it turns out to be no big deal. Uh, but in this case, they did something called spoofing, which is where you call using somebody else's phone number. So when they traced it, it actually did go back to this Twitch streamer's uh, information. So they're, they're still going to look into it. They do take it seriously. There are a lot of incidents out there where somebody swats somebody else and nothing comes of it, where the police are just sort of like, well, you know, nobody got hurt, whatever, big deal. Whereas there are a lot of places that take it very seriously now that they, they investigate it thoroughly. Uh, it's considered an act of public mischief. Um, and that's, it's public mischief if nothing comes of it. Even if they, j just by swatting, that's public mischief, and they'll look into it. And if something more comes out of that, then you could, I don't know, all sorts of other things, manslaughter, I don't know. Um, so it, luckily, Canada's a little bit ahead of the curve on that. Um, well, I mean, it's worth noting. But it's noting mostly tragic that this happened, yeah. It's worth noting that in some jurisdictions in the United States, the amount of training that police receive is shockingly low <laughs> you know yeah. unlike unlike in in canada where there is there is more training on average yeah. so you know the, the police are better trained and specifically those who are responding to these kinds of threats but let's mm. be clear here you know the city of london had individual threats to specific councillors you mm -hmm. know and and I, I do not uh, fault the London police for their response because, oh, yeah. you know, that was that's what one would expect to happen. Yeah. I am yeah. just incredibly grateful that uh, that it, it ended, you know, not well because this should never have happened to begin with. Oh, yeah. But it, it is egregious to think that by just calling out these outrageous policies that Republicans are pushing in some of the states mm -hmm. uh, that now you have armed officers storming through your front door like mm -hmm. that that is such an extreme and malicious thing to do against somebody that uh it, you know it, it really begs uh begs some thought it's mm -hmm. worth noting that clara sorrenti now has to move because obviously whoever this is knows clara sorrenti's address um, and uh, they will be moving uh, from there. So they are now heading, uh, they did a GoFundMe campaign. Uh, they've raised uh, 71000 already to cover legal fees and moving fees. I think the goal is 75000 still very good. Um, essentially, just to protect them moving forward so that uh, mm -hmm. if anything happens again and they need to up and move, that is possible. All right, we'll be jumping to our first track of the day. This is Jordan Peterson's, uh, sorry, this is, 
John Pinson bracket, Tears of a Clown, close bracket, by the Soviet influence. We've talked about the Soviet influence before. We've played them a couple of times. Uh, great queer punk band. Uh, some queer call and queer mm-hmm. punk in today's show. This is uh, the Soviet influence. We'll be back just after this. Welcome back to Kangaroo, home of Canada's queer media. That was John Peterson, Tears of a Clown by the Soviet Influence, part of our punk queer core vibe for uh, for today. Now, I am very excited to be joined. Uh, obviously, I'm always excited to be joined by Sebastian, uh, especially in certain settings. Um, but no, we also have today the incredible executive director of the Canadian AIDS Society, Gary Lacasse. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Mm-hmm. We have spoken to you many times over the years. I thought we would never have again a Garrel Cast CAS uh, uh, conversation. 
um, because I thought, you know, you are you're pulling double duty whilst the Canadian Aid Society is trying to find uh, a new uh, executive director. So we really appreciate you uh, essentially volunteering to to come and join us and talk about the the issues uh, on the agenda today. Yes, my pleasure. Excellent. Now, the reason why we reached out was the International AIDS Conference happened quite recently in Montreal. I think it was about a week or so back uh, for yeah. the time of recording. And there was some news that came out of it. For example, I think it was the fourth person ever was functionally cured of HIV. So if anyone wants to go through intensive bone marrow transfers, <laughs> then, uh, then that's, uh, that's an option. But one of the things that uh, really caught some headlines was the federal government announcing, I think it was 17 or 18 million for uh, ostensibly HIV prevention. Uh, a one-time investment. A one-time investment. Not a recurring investment now, let's be clear, because we were asking for $100 million for the whole HIV initiative exclusively, without the STIs included. So, so just, for, just for context for our, our listeners here, the, I believe that there was a, a committee of parliament uh, that was looking at how much funding Canada really needs to be giving towards, uh, you know, HIV prevention and also, you know, care and support. And they landed at around $100 million a year ongoing, specifically to HIV. Now, yes. uh, the federal government claims that they are handing out about $74 million annually uh, for HIV plus uh, sexually transmitted and bloodborne infections. So that's it's quite uh, it's it's the plus that really is dividing the attention of uh, that seventy four million. Yeah. Well, you know, I was in Montreal for the AIDS conference. We were part of the opening ceremonies, and uh, we had uh, some meetings with the minister and his representatives during the week that we were there. And um, what we were effectively asking was what the Standing Committee on Health landed on in 2003 and 2019 which was an increase to as you as you said 100 million for hiv specifically what has happened is that the 70 some odd million that the government has been giving us has been underspent by 123 million over the years which is unacceptable in itself because all that prevention and all that support could have happened much more extensively and reduce the rates. Just for our listeners, can you define that? What do you, what do you mean over the last few years they underspent by 123 million? Like that seems <clears throat> well, yeah. hard to fathom. What we what the HIV Legal Network with us discovered was that in when we went on the government sites, let's say they had to spend 70 million a year. Well, they didn't spend the full 70 million every year. So we calculated from 2008 until now how much they had underspent from that commitment to the HIV stream, which they had to spend. And it came to $123 million underspent. So when you correlate that with the rising HIV cases and STBBI cases, you see there's a direct result in underspending and not increasing the funding because supports are not there for people living with HIV, nor is there supports for prevention out there. So what we're saying is that as the Standing Committee voted in 2019, 
was that, and it was a unanimous vote. So liberals, everybody voted the same way. And we were expecting to have swift policy changes coming from this liberal government being so liberal. But what happened was the contrary, was we heard crickets. So what we have been advocating, and we're a, group, a coalition that have come together to advocate for this, is uh, you could go to hivfunding.ca and sign to write to one of your MPs or whatever. And so we've put a bit of pressure on the government. And uh, Minister Duclos uh, minister, uh, came to the, uh, the, the AIDS conference and made the announcement of the $17.5 million investment in pure HIV testing, which is self-testing. So that's what was announced. And we were it's a far cry from what we were asking for. So I find it hard to fathom that, you know, you've got the Conservatives and the NDP agreeing, <laughs> you know, on a standing committee that what this issue in our country needs is a hundred million focus funding on HIV. And what the government does is 74 million mostly ish on HIV but even then they're not spending all that cash are they are they just you know delaying handing it out or being too picky or just keeping keeping some in the bank you know it just seems to undermine the the efforts because for every time this effort is undermined what's important to note here is that there are folks who are contracting HIV and are aware they have HIV and further spreading HIV. So just before I hand to Sebastian, Gary, my mm -hmm. question for you is, in the last couple of years, how much has HIV spread in this country? It spread, there was, okay, we have to understand that. Okay, that's a loaded question in itself <laughs> because the, the testing has been almost non-existent since the COVID pandemic started, okay? Because all the testing closed down across the country. So we registered, we, we have about 2,500 new cases per year, and we've been at 1,500 per year since the COVID started. But the testing initiatives have gone down over 20% across the country. So you know that people are getting tested are the people who think they might have had an exposure, so have a higher incidence rate than the general population. So there's a lot of factors that come into this, but I mean, for us, the rates, if all the, everybody was able to get tested the way they were being before, we would think we would be still at a rising rates of HIV. And we, since 2008 to now, there's been a 25% increase in HIV cases in Canada. You know, I, I understand your, your point there. My, my question about the testing is certainly, uh, was certainly loaded. But it makes me think about how at certain points in the pandemic, the provincial governments just gave up on testing and, and they only tested, sorry, for COVID-19. They only test certain groups for COVID-19 or, or multiple symptoms for COVID-19. But collectively, we all know that even though the figures were only reporting, you know, a certain amount, we all knew that it was much larger because the testing pool was was quite small. And I think we can you know, transfer that understanding to this scenario where only about 1,500 people are, are, te are testing, but the amount of people being tested is significantly smaller. So is it a sort of a, a, um, a, a false narrative in the sense that maybe it's, you know, the idea... It is, that it's because PHAC, yeah, 
It is because PIA came to us in the in the meeting. They were trying to pad us before age 2022, and they came to us and they told us, "Oh, you know, like our we're meeting our targets. We're which is complete bull in our minds that they're meeting the UN targets." And they, they they admitted that they did not take into account in their numbers of productions of HIV cases the astonishing down number of t testing in HIV. So, you know, at least we have that, but we need to get to a sweeter place and a better place because this makes no sense for anybody out there, especially as advocates. I mean, we're at, we're dumbfounded when we heard the announcement. You know, the people who are doing HIV self-testing, we're like, hooray, we get more self-tests. You know, we don't have to pay for them with our for-profit companies that we put up with research dollars and so on and so forth. But I mean, there has to be a better way forward where the ministers listen to multiple stakeholders to see what the pathways to reducing rates are. Because prior to 2016, our rates were going down by 2000 a year at least so what the hell is happening here we need to rejig the whole system and get it up and running again so i i have a question about that uh, the funding so the, the underspending um so this is just me playing devil's advocate all right mm -hmm. so they're giving you uh what was it 10 million for all scbbi prevention and research they're giving us 70 some odd million for okay. yeah. So from their perspective, uh, could you you could be reasoning if you're preventing one STBVI, you know, any kind of prevention would probably overlap with everything else. So why not just put it all in one box and make it more efficient? And obviously different different um, infectious diseases will have different priorities and different demographics and different treatment and different testing. When it comes to preventing them, but when, like, if you're talking about something like marketing or uh, training doctors on how to talk to people, just put it all in one box called STBBI prevention and lop off the head and save some money there. Is that realistic? Is that something that can be done? It's realistic to a certain point, Sebastian, because you know, like the the way STBBIs or STIs and HIV Hep C are transmitted, they're probably transmitted the same way apart from people who use drugs through injection mm -hmm. drug use, okay? So if you prevent, if you're doing prevention of, let's say, chlamydia, it's the same prevention as you're doing for HIV, but there's a distinction. Mm -hmm. In HIV, if you're taking your drugs every day and you get to undetectable, you can't transmit anymore, so you're untransmittable. Mm -hmm. That's a huge new tool that we have in our toolbox, but it's not, we need more. Because it's it's not making it's not making a huge difference out there yet, okay. So there's something that's not right either. Our data, mm -hmm. how we do it, and how efficient we are at doing it. So I think that we have left the whole population living with HIV out in the cold for the last five years. We haven't been giving them the care and support and underpinning support that they need. So we need to shift that. So that the more support we give to people who don't have the sustainability that people who are working or whatever have, we're going to have to do our a better job at it. But 
sorry, I think it's my COVID brain here that overlapped or I had a brain fart. But, you know, when you get into doing one stream of the pillars of uh, the action plan only, like prevention is one of the pillars, care and support is another pillar, and so on and so forth. But if you only focus on prevention, you're missing a whole population there. And, we, you know, like, there's a lot of populations that are more at risk than other populations. Yes, that's that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there are whole other populations. I'm a high-risk population myself. I'm a man over 50, gay. Th th we're high-risk as much as the 30 and younger who are contracting at higher rates than the people at other populations, you know? And the other, what I really want to also highlight here is that we're a federation. So we need to have the provincial governments side by side with the federal government to bring in these initiatives to bring the rates down, which they're not doing. And we need national pharmacare so that everybody could get the free medication they need uh -huh. to stay undetectable and to make mm -hmm. that shift that could really change the dynamics and get us to zero transmissions, finally, I think. This this gets me thinking about uh, charities and nonprofits often talk about what they call mission creep. Uh, I, I think um, our listeners may be most familiar with uh, I think like the Bush administration and their mission creep, where one minute it's to do this and then it's to do that and then it's to do that, and things just keep adding on and on, adding on and adding on. So we're mm. already starting off with you know the health standing committee being like you really need a hundred million to address HIV end of list. Yeah. Now the federal government is, yes, we will give you 70-ish million to do HIV, hep C, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and just keep going on. And now, on top of that, we have a global health epidemic of monkeypox. Mm. And I have a sinking suspicion that the organizations that are being targeted to also do this are the very same ones that have been asked to do, uh, you know, all of the, the other STBBI uh, prevention and care. It warranted, I believe, that the, the Men's uh, um, Health uh, Wellness Initiative in Ottawa um, and the organizations in, I think, Toronto and Vancouver, uh, sorry, Toronto and Montreal, each had additional federal funding, one-time federal funding, uh, to specifically support monkeypox uh, additional outreach. Um, but is this is this just yet another thing that this same group of providers are being asked to sort of expend their energies on? It's not the same group of providers, okay? Hmm. We were brought in from the fold when the COVID pandemic hit. The HIV network was brought into the fold to uh, ensure that priority populations, the, the hard to reach and all that were re reached and that they got their vaccinations and everything. So we were at the forefront of COVID also, with not one penny more. Okay, so that's one thing. Now monkeypox has st uh, started. We are invited to conference calls with PHAC every week to every second week on the status of monkeypox and how we could help. So there's no new money for everybody. It's for specific initiatives like you spoke to. Mm. But I mean, have they thrown as much money to monkeypox? as they have to COVID? I don't think so. 
Mm. No, and we, you know? we've, we've talked about that. The There is testing available for priority organizations. And, you know, we were talking about the Toronto, the Ottawa market, where you have to book an appointment uh, mm. in advance uh, compared to getting a COVID-19 vaccine, which is significantly, uh, you know, a, a lower barrier. A huge barrier. Yeah. Now, all three of us tend to be very upbeat, optimistic people, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take a chance and say maybe let's be cynical for a second. Completely out of character. This is very really? unlike you. Very <laughs> how out of guard of you? <laughs> how how much of this do you think is just optics? That you know, it, it's good optics on the on the international stage to be all for. Uh, COVID-19, but because monkeypox is new enough and it's not the done thing, it's not something that the EU is declaring as a global, actually has the EU declared it's a global emergency. I don't think they have yet. But anyway, like nobody's looking at us and saying, what are you doing about monkeypox? It's completely internal. And because there's nobody staring at us about it, that it's like, well, there, there's no optics. We should probably take care of it, but it's not urgent. Like, do you think that, is, is, it, is it that bad or is it just that they don't they're underestimating how bad it is. You know, I was in an interview and somebody wanted to talk about monkeypox last week. Uh-huh. And I kind of shied away from it because I was there. There's a lot, of, you know, they wanted to make the correlation with HIV. And today, with what we've been discussing and what I've been thinking about since last week, because when we were in Montreal for the AIDS conference, you could mm-hmm. go just walk up the street and get a monkeypox shot like hmm. that. Anybody from anywhere in the world. So Montreal has been ahead of the curve for monkeypox uh, inoculation since the beginning of, of the, uh, the surge. What I want to say, though, is that it's funny that the pressure and the investment is not at the same level as COVID at the same time as the development of the disease. Mm-hmm. Is it because it's only gay men? Can I, can I put that forward? I mean, you could say it's, it looks that way, Sebastian. I mean, it looks, yeah. you know, yeah. you say that. I mean, I, th- there were, I feel there were know? protests in New York because the New York State and the city of New York had significantly underestimated the impact of monkeypox in yeah. that city. Yeah, two and state. vaccines available at the beginning. Two yeah. vaccines. From and what I heard it, at the AIDS conference, New York City is a, such a crowded city where even if it weren't spreading sexually, it would be spreading through contact but i will i will say there is one counterpoint that i have and it's it's a fair one but not a perfect one and that is the global stage was kind of tepid about covid until they confirmed 100 it's definitely airborne and then people jumped on it so the fact that it was airborne is part of what made people panic about covid so there is that but the fact that it is mostly going through gay men is definitely it, it might be a thing it might be th- if it becomes airborne I'm, I'm sure it, people would become a lot more panicked about it i know it's just it's just that we had these these discussions with the minister last week and and i'm really torn in it because yeah. I, mean, I don't want to make any correlations with hiv but mm-hmm. there are similarities mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, you know, like the monkeypox, I think we have enough vaccine to go around and to get it out there and to do it. But the information on who's really at risk is not really clear. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. So our, but we don't have it out there. That's what I mean. I know who's at risk, 
but the general population are not aware because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. they say it's only this but i'm really torn in the, in the monkeypox i'm torn because mm -hmm. there's a there's a lot of undertones that have to be looked at priority populations where it's spread uh, and how it's spread like i mean i saw on social networks uh, that uh, some the, this couple had gone to uh, some boston raves and they came back and they were both positive for monkeypox you know like it's it's you know all these things happening i don't know how many are going to come out of our own parties that we've had here in montreal or whatever mm -hmm. you know so it I, is there but uh, i mean they will bring the money depending on how the how far, how high the outcry is and i think it's the squeaky wheel that gets hurt yeah i think no. you've, you've hit the nail on the head there in terms of uh, you know the squeaky wheel and I think that that's really where this conversation about HIV is so incredibly important is because with COVID taking up a lot of uh, people's thoughts and attention and even, you know, uh, research funding. You know, there was a recent study out of the UK that found that uh, HIV funding, HIV research had taken a bit of a nosedive during uh, the COVID uh, period. Totally because everyone is focused over here at this very squeaky wheel, and rightly so, tens of thousands of people have died. You know, this mm. is absolutely where we should be focusing. But at the same time, this, uh, you know, silent uh, spread of HIV in, in, with uh, testing down, um, it is incredibly concerning. I am encouraged that uh, the federal government has renewed its funding to the UN AIDS uh, organization. Uh, they came back again with uh, a $5 million commitment to UN AIDS. I am encouraged that they've invested, uh, I think of the 17 million, about 8 million of that is in the, the at-home testing kits. Um, and then they're obviously adding capacity to the uh, the, the National Testing Institute in, uh, in Winnipeg. Um, but does that go far enough? You know, is that uh, is that really enough to to respond to what the Standing Committee of Health have asked for, what coalitions of aid organizations have asked for? You know, I I don't know. I I would like to think that this federal government can walk and chew gum at the same time, that it can respond to COVID, respond to monkeypox, and maintain sufficient attention on HIV at the same time. But the proof is is not necessarily here in the funding dollars. No. I was going to say, talk about being optimistic. You're not at all cynical. <laughs> well, you know, you know, at a certain point there, Sebastian, you have to look at the facts and, uh, dead on. And I mean, the fact, nothing's been joyful about the way we're going forward. I mean, mm -hmm. there's been so many closures of HIV networks in the last few years mm -hmm. and uh, organizations that are still at risk of closing because of underfunding, underfunding. Mm -hmm. So... I think it's it's important to understand that at 70 some odd million dollars, we were expecting at least a 35 million dollar increase in HIV funding to combat HIV and other STBBIs because we knew we wouldn't get 150 million dollars a year that would probably be required to really have a good offensive against and get to where we need to get to. But we, I mean. 17.5 million, 9 million, which is more than 50%, going to the national lab, which is internally in the government. So it's not even coming to community. And the rest of it going to HIV self-testing -test exclusively, 
where we know 40% max take the self HIV self-testing. And that does not include all the other testing that we need for chlamydia, for syphilis, for hep C, and the combined testing that we need for a holistic approach to testing. So, yeah, I'm raining on the parade, but I mean, I think we're at the point where we need to rain because mm -hmm. this is not going to move the dial that much. The people who were getting the HIV self-testing were already getting them. Hmm. I hate so to say this, uh, uh, Gary, but I think the, the parade got cancelled uh, <laughs> in, in this case. That's that's my, <laughs> my takeaway um, for how this is going. Um, you mentioned earlier a website where you're trying to put a little bit of pressure on the politicians, that, particularly the federal government, so the, the uh, elected uh, liberal MPs, to really increase this funding because it feels like, you know, when there's a, a tsunami and you see the water moving out, that's, the, that's the, the feeling I'm getting from this, that we're looking out on the horizon and we're just seeing the water level recede. Um, and I worry about what's what's coming coming back uh, for us later. What's the website that folks can go to to maybe uh, advocate for HIV? Yeah, HIVfunding.ca is the website that we put up, and uh, there's some very pertinent information that's there. And there's also links how to, in in one click, you could write to your MP and to the Minister of Health, and it's a really comprehensive and easy site to use. And I suggest I, I, uh, I'm asking you all to go there if you can, to give us a hand in getting our HIV rates in check, and uh, you know that we're the most underperforming G7 country facing HIV increases in the world. So that's where we are starting from in Canada. So when we go on the world stage and say, "Hey, we're the best." We're far from being the best, and I think um, I think hopefully Minister Duclos in the last week, and with these ongoing efforts, that there will be a change where we'll be able to really realign our efforts in Canada. Excellent. Well, we're going to jump out with uh, just the one of us by Kitty Prozac, sticking with our uh, queer core punk. I think that's very well aligned. We'll be back just after this. Revolve around 
They say that the closet's such a terrible place But the light's on in here And out there it's the middle of the night But my hand's on the handle I'm done living in fear Of what I see when I look in the mirror Just the one of us Ugly and alone in the light Well maybe you're right But you should not Welcome back to Can Queer, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. We don't have a huge amount of time, but one of the stories that we missed earlier was about the 1973 arson attack on the Upstairs Lounge. Now, you've mentioned that a few times. Yes, I have, the, yes. One of the most egregious attacks on LGBT folks uh, in queer history. Yes, um, be- before the Pulse nightclub, it was the largest mass killing deliberate mass killing of of uh, gay men um yes i actually i know exactly what story you're gonna tell i i read the whole thing recently as well yeah, yeah why that, do you the, why do you take it away yeah when all you- right so at the time uh 
So okay, so the the upstairs lounge was a well, it was a second story uh, gay bar in I'm going to say New Orleans. Am I right about yes, that? Yeah. Okay, I'm going off memory. You've got the story in front of you, so I think I'm doing pretty well so far. But uh, it was an arson attack, and because there was bars on the windows, a lot of people couldn't get out, and there were uh, quite a few people who unfortunately perished inside the building. And when they found out that it was gay men. The fire department, police department, and city basically became uninvested in trying to figure out who did it, how did it happen, um, and more importantly for this story, who died. Uh, because it was the 70s, a lot of people felt a lot of embarrassment knowing that they had gay relatives. Nobody came to claim the bodies, and a lot of the bodies ended up basically just dumped in unmarked graves. And uh, a lot of uh, there's an organization I can't remember which one. That's the one that you're going to have to supply. Oh, I don't know what the organization is. <laughs> well, anyway, there's a group based in New Orleans who are trying to figure out who these uh, who these individuals who perished in the fire were. Uh, they're exhuming bodies. They're looking at other evidence. They're looking at missing persons reports, trying to figure out who's who so that they could be given uh, dignified well, burials. Three of them. They found four, four people were buried in a pauper's mm. grave. Uh, following the the attack, which I believe killed about thirty two people in seventy three, yes. now one of them, uh, um, oh my gosh, I just had uh, had their first name, Moral LeBlanc, uh, mm-hmm. sorry, not Moral LeBlanc, Ferris LeBlanc, was mm-hmm. a World War Two veteran who had been uh, honorably discharged at the time. He was fifty. He had been honorably discharged from the military, and was due by every right. A full military service funeral, uh, having served in World War II on behalf of the United States. Uh, yes. Army. Now the uh, the city buried him in a pauper's grave and did not even mention or notify the family that uh, that he had died. They were unaware. He just disappeared. Yeah, he just disappeared right. because the uh, the city just took zero care. For, mm. for that event taking place. It was gay men set on fire in the 70s. Uh, mm. There was no compassion, really, by mm. the city of Orleans, uh, New Orleans. Um, they have now apologized on the 49th anniversary of this uh, this outrageous attack. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, they knew at least who uh, LeBlanc was. Um, and mm. they've been, they've apologized to the family and they are trying to identify the the identity of the the three uh unknowns that were buried alongside leblanc uh in the in the pauper's grave mm-hmm. but yeah i don't know it's interesting because we we talk a lot about obviously folks that are aware of stonewall and uh some folks may may recall the pulse uh, nightclub massacre um mm-hmm. but it's often some of these other ones that uh get lost to uh the annals of time and mm-hmm. i just thought that was an update that was worth sharing the Montreal Olympic Raids. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people talk about them too often. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, on that cheerful note, this has been a very upbeat episode. Uh, we're going to be playing out with True Trans Soul Rebel yet again with our queer core punky vibes. Uh, this is by Against Me. I have been Luke Smith. And I've been Sebastian. And thank you for listening. Thank you.